Hello, everybody. In the making of this podcast and in the post-production and the editing, I realized that it was really, really long. It went a full hour and a half, just about, with Wes Durham, the voice of the Falcons, and there really wasn't anything that I wanted to cut. So I made the decision to cut this in half and post it in two parts, and I'm not going to make you wait for the second part or anything like that, but you will have to click on two different links to listen to the entire thing. I think that will make it easier for most people to listen to, where you can listen to 45 or 50 minutes at a time, and then listen to the other one some other time. But just so you know, that is the way that that this is going to go. This is the first time I've done that, and I wanted to give you fair warning. So without further ado, here is the Say the Damn Score podcast. This is the Save the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast. You just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, so I don't really know why I told you again, but I just did. And we have a very special guest today here, Wes Durham, the radio voice of the Atlanta Falcons. But before we get to him, I just want to remind everybody to subscribe to the podcast on the top right of the page on SayTheDamnScore.com or on iTunes or on Stitcher or however else you listen to podcasts. You can pretty much find this anywhere. So now to the get the housekeeping out of the way. We'll get to the part that people care about. And Wes, first of all, thank you so much for joining uh, joining us here on the podcast. Logan, I'm happy to do it. Thanks for calling me and uh, and asking me to be part of it. So one of the things that I ask just about everybody as the first question, it makes a good icebreaker and there's a lot of unique stories. And I imagine doing a little bit of reading on you, yours will be unique in a different way, is your break into the sports casting industry. You kind of grew up with it. What was your uh, connect? Obviously, I'll just let you tell the story. What was your connection into the sports casting business and uh, how difficult was it to get in? You know, Logan, um, I think like anybody else, it was it was still a challenge for me to get in the industry. Um, my dad was in the business until he retired in 2011, um, and he was very successful. Uh, probably his biggest notoriety is that he was the voice of North Carolina football and basketball and radio for 40 years. Um, prior to that, he was also a sports anchor at uh, three different television stations in North and South Carolina. Um, and in fact, he did the first 10 years that he did North Carolina, he was also a sports anchor on television. Um, and he actually was at the forefront of ACC basketball on TV in the 1960s uh, before he went to North Carolina. That usually is the way it doesn't work that way anymore. People don't leave television to go to radio. But that's what he did in 1971. He had gone to school at North Carolina, so when they offered him an opportunity to be the radio voice of the Tar Heels, he took it and stayed for 40 years. Um, I'm probably like a lot of guys and girls that end up in this business and that I love sports. I played sports as a kid. Um, I gravitated to basketball because I was very tall as a kid. I was 6 feet tall and 185 pounds at 12 years old. Um, and so 
I gravitated to basketball. I did play uh, one year of football in high school, loved the sport, but believe it or not, stopped playing football because I think God touched me in a weird way in that he, yeah, I, I've always felt like that I was going to be in, in this business somehow. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I felt like I was going to be in radio, TV, and in particular I thought I was going to be in sports. And I had a chance after my sophomore year in high school to spend the summer working at a radio station in Raleigh for Capital Broadcasting Company. And I was 16 years old, and the football coach is stomping mad to this day that I stopped playing football because I had a summer job in radio. And Logan, I remember vividly telling him, Coach Worley, I'm going to be in this business a lot longer than I'm going to be in the football business. And from that point on, I was I was pretty much committed to trying to make a career of it. Um, I kind of knew at 14 or 15 I wanted to do it, but when I had a chance to go to work for somebody, the dynamic changed completely. So um, I've been very blessed to have unbelievable experiences. Uh, my college experience is second to none. I will stack it up against anybody. I went to a small school in North Carolina called Elon College at the time. It's now Elon University. And I got to be part of 150 football and basketball broadcasts on radio in four years. Um, there's a lot of bad tape out there with me <laughs> on it. Um, but I got to learn preparation. I got to learn time management because I was going to school. Um, and really, when I graduated from college, I was I was going to try and, and get a job. I was I was you know, kind of locked in on being somebody's radio voice my first year out of college. Um, and, I, and I was inspired. I was inspired by the people that I saw as a kid growing up doing this. Um, my dad, I mean, is still my favorite announcer of all time, and even to this day is somebody who I will lean on for guidance. Um, and I, I feel very compelled to do two things in this business now that I've been in it, geez, hard to believe professionally i've been in it 28 years and that doesn't seem possible because it's been so fast but um i feel compelled to pay it forward and i feel compelled to connect uh i'm very big on meeting people in this business i think it's important to to have contacts i think it's it's how we all kind of survive it to be honest because it can be nutty as we all know at any level um, but but I'm very committed to paying it forward. I want to help young people who want to get in the business if I can, listen to their stuff, feedback, what have you. But at the same time, I'm also still driven like the 22-year-old guy that graduated college who wanted to get his first job. And so, but but like many of us in this business, as I was going to say, I think we're in this business because we love sports and we enjoy competing in sports and playing in sports. We may not have been very good at it. But we wanted to stay with it, and one of the ways you can stay with it is by having a career doing games. So what was your first job? Was it, was it at Radford, or was there one before that? No, my first job technically out of school was at Radford University in Virginia, and it's a job I almost didn't get. Um, the short version of a long story basically is is that I had never had a full-time job, and it was a state position within the Commonwealth of Virginia because Radford was a public school, and they were hiring for the position. So one of the things on the application said salary requirements. You know, what's the minimum salary you've made? And I put down an hourly wage that I had been paid to do the games in college or to do part-time jobs that I had had, doing high school football or 
I did minor league baseball one summer when I was in college of a, of a single-A team in Greensboro that was near Elon's campus. And so I put all that information down, and the people in the human resources office at the university threw my application away because they said I didn't complete the application. And the long the, the other interesting part of the story, I says, well, how did I not complete the application? They said, well, you never put down a salary that you had made. I said, well, I've never made a salary. I've never had a full-time job doing this. I've been graduating from college. And, you know, it's funny now, but at the time, I was my application was in the trash can. And um, fortunately, I had sent a tape of my college work to the basketball coach at Radford, who was Oliver Purnell, and he heard it and loved it. And somehow or another, my application got pulled from the wastebasket, and I ended up with an interview. And Radford took a chance on a 22-year-old guy who had done a lot of games, um, as their first ever on-campus radio voice. They had had an older gentleman from the community who had done the games, and the minute I started doing the games, you know, the dynamic of that position changed. And Dave Hunziker, who's now the voice of the Oklahoma State Cowboys, was one of the guys that followed me at Radford. And to this day, they're, they're proud to tell you that, you know, the guy doing the National Football League and the guy doing Oklahoma State uh, were former voices of the Radford Highlanders. And they've had – They've had good announcers since then, and so I guess we kind of got it started the right way. In this podcast, I've talked a lot about you know, the struggles of just getting that first job and finding it, uh, right. not knowing anyone. You have a different situation, and I'm sure that that had its own unique challenges, having your dad be uh, the voice of North Carolina, be a well-known person. What are maybe some things with that dynamic that people wouldn't think about that were difficult for you? Well, you had to convince people that it wasn't some stick you were trying to pull. Um, you know, you, you had to convince people that you were good, you know, because they had to hear your work and understand. Eventually, you can be whoever you want to be, son, right? I mean, you can be, you know, you could have the President of the United States be your dad, but if you want to be the President, you got to prove you can be the President, you know? Um, in, in my case, my dad was very accomplished, and... I was able to meet a lot of really nice people in my four years of college, somehow or another connected to my dad. I mean, I went to Carolina games. From the time I was 14 on, Logan, I never sat in the seats at a Carolina game. I stood behind my dad in the press box. I mean, that's that's where the Jones for this whole business really kind of started for me. You know, I mean, I wanted to be in it. And when I started standing in the press box at 14, I was really sure I wanted to be in it because I love that whole environment, and I still do. I think that's the – to me, that's one of the best parts behind preparation of, of being in the industry is is having it kind of roll at you on game day. Um, no matter what you're doing, what if, I mean, I did a high school game on television last Saturday night and still had that same kind of rush of the high school game. You know, and there weren't 6,000 people in the Georgia Dome when it started. But um, my dad, you know, he was accomplished, and I had to – people had to understand that I could do it. I mean – that I was just not Woody Durham's son trying to do the same thing my dad did. Um, and there is a bit of a calling for this. I mean, you've got to be able to kind of withstand some of that criticism. And sometimes it's not comfortable for the person who, you know, signs on to do this. But I was committed to doing it, um, and, and it was hard still to get a first job. I mean, you know, to get a first job where you felt like you could stand up on your two feet, too, and that was really hard. And it's still not easy. I mean, you know, the competitive nature of this business uh, makes that first job uh, a difficult proposition. So, but I was thankful that Radford gave me the chance, even though they had to pull the application out of the wastebasket. But, um, 
you know, the people there, um, you know, I'm, I'm forever grateful they gave me the opportunity. And it also goes back to my college experience. I mean, Elon just simply didn't have a radio broadcast. And there was a gentleman who was a part-time professor, another guy who was in the campus administration, and they allowed me to come in there and be a part of the broadcast and ultimately do the games. And without that, I, I don't have the tape to get the Radford job. So, I mean, that's that's all a big part of it as well, for sure. So is there anything besides just sending in the tape and letting them hear the quality of it that you did to prove yourself that you were very serious about it? Oh, I just put my head down and went and did the games. Um, I, I was just trying to get tape. I really was. I mean, I was trying to get tape, listen to tape, see how it sounded. I mean, I would I would take a box of cassettes to the radio station before every road trip in football or basketball or even a home game and ask the guy who was running the board, hey, pop this in there and just hit the record button for me and I'll come get it after the game's over. And that's pretty much what I did. I used to go uh, take the tape down there and I would ask him down the line before we started, hey, is the tape rolling? Yep, got it rolling for you. And so, and those are the tapes. I'd listen to them. And if they were good, I'd set them aside. And if they weren't, then I'd bulk erase the tapes and, you know, give it to, give it to them again to record another game. And so... You know, and then when I felt like I had something good, I would share it with my dad. And somebody. And the other thing my dad always encouraged me to do, especially in college, was contact other people. He was big on that. He felt like that would be something that would also help me. And so I contacted other announcers in the state. I'd send tapes to other people, you know, kind of around the southeast where I grew up and, and that type thing. And, and I was thankful that when I sent a resume, sent my cover letter, that they would listen, and, and most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time I'd get some feedback, and um, I thought that was pretty important and also very helpful in, in constructing kind of the way I ultimately was going to do games. Do you still own a cassette player if you had one of those tapes and wanted to listen to it? Um, yes, believe it or not, when we moved about a year and a half ago, um, my wife still had one of those like cassette players that you have in a schoolhouse, you know, that your teacher at elementary school might have had <laughs> or whatever. And um, I put, I found one of the cassettes and I threw it in the tape player as we were packing to move. And she actually came in the room and said, "Who and what is that?" And I said, "That's me." And she goes, "When?" And I said, "1987." And she, she kind of laughed at it. And so, yeah, I mean, I've still got some of the tapes. They're upstairs in an attic here in our new home and. Um, every once in a while, if, if something happens, I'll, uh, if I find a cassette player, I may go grab one of those tapes. I've still got the basketball tape that got me my first job. Remember the game vividly and some of the things about it and the tape that I sent and so forth. And it was, it was by far the best tape I had as a senior in college. And sure enough, it won me, it won me that first job. So I'm just curious with your story and Joe Buck's story are somewhat mm -hmm. similar. Do you guys know each sure. other, and have you guys kind of bonded over kind of having that same maybe experience where you're compared to your fathers all the time? Believe it or not, we've never met. Um, I've passed by. He's done some of the same NFL games, obviously, that I've called with the Falcons, but we've never officially met or been in the same room or even had the same conversation. I know mutual friends of his. He knows friends of mine. Um but respectfully, individually, we've never even connected or even discussed it. Um, and that's unique because a lot of, and I joke around, you know, because when you're the son of somebody, I always, 
buddy of mine's a supervisor of officials for ACC basketball. His dad was a legendary NBA official who should be in the Hall of Fame. And he and I always joke around that we're the son of somebody, you know. And so if you're in the son of somebody club, you got to be, you know, you really got to stick together. I know guys whose dads were broadcasters. Dave Neal that works for the SEC Network and ESPN, his dad's a broadcaster. I know his dad, and I know Dave pretty well. Um, and, yeah, it's it's a different way to grow up. I mean, Dave went to school at Florida State. Bob, his dad, was doing the SEC package on TBS at the time and uh, doing the NBA on TBS and, and having tremendous success. And Dave went to school at Florida State and was – trying to be a play-by-play guy and, you know, has had a very fine career. Um, But, yeah, you're cognizant of it and you're cognizant of others in the country that go through the same thing. And a lot of the things that I hear Joe Buck went through, um, Logan, are probably some of the things that I went through as well. Um, You know, his dad was iconic. My dad in the state of North Carolina is iconic. Um, His dad was a legacy announcer for a heritage institution. So was my dad. So I'm pretty sure we've probably dealt with some of the same things over the years. And uh, yet, I I like to think he's one of the most prepared announcers in the country. I think he's one of three guys that when you turn the game on, the one thing you do know is he's prepared. I think there are a couple guys like that 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 I listen to all the time, regardless of what they're doing, because I know how prepared they're going to be. Who are the other two? Mike Tirico and Dan Schulman. I don't think there's a... I don't think there's a broadcast that I've ever heard Mike Tirico, Dan Schulman, or Joe Buck do that they haven't been prepared. Now, there are other guys, too. I mean, Doc Emmerich, to me, has just got the most unbelievable command of the English language. So does Vin Scully. But their preparation, I'm sure, is perfect. I just don't listen to them for preparation. I listen to them because in the case of Mike Emmerich and Vin Scully, I'm listening for their command of the language because I think – Honestly, you can learn things every time you listen to somebody. If you're in this business, if you know what you want to listen for, and with Doc and with Vin Scully, it's always the command of the language. I'm I'm captivated and fascinated by their unbelievable command of the English word when it comes to doing a ball game. So that's an interesting comment that you said you can learn something from everyone you listen to. Do you ever, when you're just driving through the backwoods of Georgia somewhere, do you ever just turn on a local high school broadcast, listen to some young kid, and learn from them? You try to, sure. I think if you, I don't think if you pay, if you don't pay attention to this deal, um, Logan, you're you're going to fall behind. I, I think this is a competitive business, but it's competitive to yourself as much as it is to the other guys doing games. So I always think there's a chance to learn something. I mean, you know, when when I first met you in June at the NSMA in Salisbury, I spoke of, you know, coming in there the day of the one-day ticket that John Chelesnick did, and I had a break in the golf event I was playing in while you guys were in the seminar, and I noticed all those spotters boards. Well, I stood there for five minutes and looked at spotters boards. And, you know, why would somebody who's done the NFL over a decade and done college athletics 28 years, why would he sit there and look at spotters cards? Because, quite frankly, there may have been something there that caught my eye that, that I might think of and be willing to try and implement in what I'm doing. So I don't think you ever stop in this business. There's a, you know, There might be a different way to do a spotter's chart. There might be a different way to do something else during a broadcast to make it better than it currently is. And that's something I'm continually thinking about. Now, you don't overthink it, okay? I mean, there's a, there's a line there where you just over, you know, you, 
you try to learn so much that you forget about what you've done. But I think there's always still room to grow as a broadcaster. And I think that's a pretty important piece of the process that we go through in this business. So let's move on to the job before the Atlanta Falcons that you're maybe most well-known for with Georgia Tech, where you know what, you can have all the connections you want. If you want to get a job in the ACC at that level, you have to be able to, you have to have the chops. Take us through the process of getting that job, how you were able to land that, and the breaks that you needed to get it. Well, my career early, after three years at Radford in, in June of 1991, I was offered the opportunity to go to Marshall in West Virginia. Um, and there's actually a tie to the Marshall story that, that is the beginning of a lifelong friendship, and that's from uh, I applied for the Wake Forest job the year before in 1990 and finished second at Wake Forest. And when I finished second at Wake Forest, the guy hiring for the Wake Forest job was Ben Sutton, who later would go on to become the chairman of ISP Sports, and later, uh, here a few years ago, ISP became IMG College. And my friendship with Ben Sutton began because he really liked my tape. And he says that one of the hardest things he's ever had to do was not hire me at Wake Forest. But he knew there would be other jobs available down the road that I might be a fit for. And he recommended me to Lee Moon, who at the time was the athletic director at Marshall, as an up-and-coming announcer. So at 25 years of age, I went to Marshall in West Virginia to do football and basketball as the voice of the thundering herd. And I learned so much uh, at Marshall doing those games. The, the hook on that was I was only there one year. And then at 26 years of age, uh, I had an opportunity to go to Vanderbilt in the Southeastern Conference. Uh, a longtime announcer, Charlie McAlexander, was leaving Nashville to go to Kentucky as part of a plan to replace K. Wood Ledford. He was one of three guys that were brought into the broadcast to replace one guy, which is still phenomenal. But it shows you how iconic K. Wood was as the voice of the Wildcats. But um, So I left Marshall after 11 months and 28 days, almost a year, to go to Nashville as the voice of the Commodores. And in three years at Vanderbilt, I learned about as much as you can learn about the business side of this. Um, because I was an independent contractor, had no benefits, um, was just a young married guy with no kids and, you know, a townhouse we could make rent on and things like that. And I actually took a pay cut to go from Marshall to Vanderbilt, Logan, um, which a lot of people find interesting, but that was the case. It wasn't a big pay cut, but it was a pay cut. Um, and so to get to Georgia Tech, believe it or not, there were two jobs open in the spring of 1995. And one was South Carolina, where the iconic voice Bob Fulton was retiring after 40-odd years as the voice of the Gamecocks. And out of the blue, Georgia Tech came open. And the connection there was that Dr. Homer Rice, who was the athletic director at Georgia Tech, had hired my dad as the voice of the Tar Heels in 1971 at North Carolina. But I went through the process just like I was anybody else. I was contacted and asked if I was interested. My name had been circulated as part of the South Carolina search. But I knew that if Georgia Tech was going to be available, I wanted the Georgia Tech job because I grew up in the ACC. Atlanta was a top ten media market. And the, second, the third part of it, believe it or not, was I wanted to do games with my dad. I wanted to do the same games my dad was doing. 
and for 16 years that we did. I mean, we did games from 1995 to 2011 when Georgia Tech played Carolina, and it was awesome. And so I came to Georgia Tech in uh, June of 1995 and then started doing the Atlanta Falcons in the fall of 2004 and left Georgia Tech in uh, June of 2013 to go to television. I want to go backwards a little bit to what one of the things you said about Vanderbilt. You said you learned a lot of the lot of lessons of the business of radio when you were there. What were those, and how did they help you going forward? Well, because my first two jobs at Radford and Marshall, I was a school employee. I worked for the athletic department, and so I was an employee, and you know had benefits and taxes and just kind of a what you would call a normal job. You know, I mean. You file vacation, the whole bit. Well, at Vanderbilt, you were an independent contractor. You didn't, you didn't have any taxes taken out of your money. You didn't have your own insurance plan. You had to, you know, pay for your Cobras and whatever else. And so, you kind of learned how to pay taxes on the quarter, and you learned how to live life as an independent contractor. And actually, the three years there under that arrangement really helped me because it, it kind of set the table for. And I didn't know it at the time, obviously, but. It set me for for down the road when not only was I doing Georgia Tech, but then I added the Falcons and even some of the ancillary things I started doing after the early years in Atlanta to do, you know, like a college baseball game here or there or a college basketball game on TV for the early days of Fox Sports South and things of that nature. So, you know, it kind of helped itself along the way. And uh, and to be honest with you, it was okay. It. You know, it was hard at the time because that's how I figured out we had taken a pay cut to leave West Virginia. But um, I think learning the business is always important. I mean, it's a great industry to be in. You know, if you don't anticipate becoming Howard Hughes or Rockefeller overnight, I think you'll be okay. Um, But you also have to understand how your money is made and how it's calculated for. And I think we get caught up in just being in the business sometimes and we don't think about it. So... Uh, those were very, very, uh, very, very great, very, very good experiences, I guess, to have at the time because of, of ultimately what the business would be like, uh, you know, as I stand here today and talk to you in 2016. So I don't think it, I, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that probably the best player you covered at Georgia Tech was Calvin Johnson. Give us a couple stories about Calvin Johnson. First day I ever saw him, I knew he was the real deal, um, you know, he had that it thing, that quality. Um, I cause a lot of arguments sometimes because I'll tell older Tech fans who've seen a lot more football than I have at Georgia Tech in 18 years that I think pound for pound he's the greatest player in school history. I just, I was captivated by the young man's work ethic, his athletic ability, his uh, humbleness, the, the drive to be what he was in college and what he later became in the National Football League. And believe it or not, I can I can believe that he's retired. Um, Calvin did not live to play football. He used football as a vehicle to succeed. And his mother has a Ph.D. in education. His dad worked for the uh, one of the railroad companies based in the South for years and years and still works for the railroad uh, despite his son's success. And I think he's a really, really good example of what this thing is all about that we watch guys go into in professional sports. And um, I, it was a thrill to watch him, uh, even as a, as a high school 
senior when I met him on his visit, and when he came to Georgia Tech as a freshman, I was just uh, captivated by what kind of package we had here as a person, not just a football player, but as a human being. And, uh, boy, he backed it up now. He was sensational. And uh, really one of the unique thrills was to be able to do the Falcons-Lions game the night he set the single-season receiving record. Uh, they happened to be playing Atlanta that night at Ford Field, and I saw him on the field before the game, and he gave me this big hug. And he he told me that night, he said, man, is it appropriate you're here? And I said, yeah, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? And then his dad saw me and his mom and his sister and that kind of thing. And that that was special for me. So when he made the catch to break Jerry Rice's record during that game on a Saturday night, uh, my broadcast partner on the Falcons, Dave Archer, knew how close Calvin and I were. And he says, is this choking you up a little bit? I said, oh, I'm not going to tell you I'm not proud of it. I mean, because I was proud of it. And um, he just got inducted or elected into the Georgia Tech Hall of Fame. He'll be inducted in October. And uh, I'm going to do everything I can to try and see it, that's for sure. So what means more to you then? You've won a lot of awards over your time. Do moments like that matter more, or do does the recognition of your peers and some of the other stuff, which mean as much or more to you? Well, that's a good question. You know, the, the awards and the honors and people validating kind of your career path is nice. But, Logan, to be honest with you, the relationships you have with people uh, far outweighs it. Um, you know, and I'm blessed. I mean, I, I've, I've had a, a blessed life and a blessed professional life especially. Um, you know, and, and I've had a marvelous family. Um, you know, my parents and my mom are just, unbelievable and my mom's put up with my dad's career my career my brother is in sales and broadcasting at elon for img i mean you know it's we've had a broadcasting life as a family but the relationships i have with people in this business the relationships i have with friends i made through this business um the former players and the coaches that type thing you you can't replace those um you know, Mark Teixeira is retiring at the end of the year from the New York Yankees. Uh, I exchanged a text with him the day he announced his retirement. Um, Calvin Johnson, you just mentioned. Jarrett Jack, I mean, uh, who plays now in the NBA, has been there for a long time. My first year at Georgia Tech was Stephon Marbury, who I saw in Atlanta three years ago. I mean, it, you know, but even then, besides that, to, to have the friendships that you have in this business, um, you know, four of my best friends are in the Big Ten doing games. Uh, I, I count all the announcers in the ACC as friends, I mean, because I worked with them so long. So, you know, there's a there's a lot to be said about, you know, the business and the industry and sometimes how competitive it is. But, boy, the friendships you make are just are remarkable as well. So we should have probably talked about this earlier when we were talking about your time in North Carolina. But when I'm – when you were following your dad around, there was a couple good players and coaches on that team over the years <laughs> that you could probably have a little bit of dirt on. And I'm just going to give you the floor here. Which ones? Let's let's start with <laughs> Michael Jordan. That's that's the one I want to know. I'm sure um, you get that all the time. Well, I mean, you know, obviously my dad did the games for his three years in Chapel Hill. Um, first time I ever met him was actually prior to his senior year in high school. And Did he have the same he, it that Calvin Johnson had? Um, the pickup game I saw, he was really good. He was really good. Um, but Calvin's 
Calvin's it was a little different because I, I watched it for a lot. I mean, I watched Michael play pickup for 30 minutes as a rising senior in high school. I mean, I watched Calvin Johnson practice every day for three years. You know, I mean, there's a little different concept there. But to me, Michael was always this guy who had an unbelievable drive. Now, I will say the and – I, and I see Julio Jones now practice in the NFL, okay? So you can compare Julio and Calvin, but all three that you're asking me about – have that it. They have that drive, that gear to be the best or be good at the end of practice or be good at the at the end of the game. Their team may not win, but they want to go make that play. They want to be, you know, that level type player. Um, and Michael had that because of his competitive gene. And now, you know, the secret's out. That that got out pretty quick at Carolina and then got out really quick in the pros at how competitive he is at everything, not just basketball. I mean, and his competitive drive is the thing that I think probably catches your eye more than anything because it's rare you're going to see somebody who grinds it like he does to win. Did you ever and get in a competitive situation with him in anything? No. Like cards no. or checkers? or No, no, I wouldn't. No, I don't have a wallet. Uh, <laughs> at that I, age, um, he didn't either. <laughs> no, I no, I did. Uh, I played pickup ball with some of his teammates the next year at camp, um, but I never got in a competitive situation with him. Um, but he was he was dynamic in that light. And then when he came to Chapel Hill as a freshman, the the best benefit he had at North Carolina in eighty one eighty two his freshman year, and everybody remembers he hit the shot. But he wasn't even the third. He was the third best player on the team then. Okay. Because James Worthy and Sam Perkins were better basketball players that year than Michael Jordan was. Now, Michael had, you know, Coach Smith put Michael in a situation where Coach Smith understood that Michael needed to do, you know, one, two, and three to be better, and Michael took that and then just went next level. Because Michael was not a great outside scorer, outside shooter as a freshman. He was a slash guy. But he came back as a sophomore with a complete 19, 20-foot jump shot. And, you know, the same thing happened when Jerry Stackhouse was at Carolina, too. His freshman year, he was a slasher. And as a sophomore, he came back hitting jump shots. And when Michael started hitting jump shots, Logan, it was over. I mean, it was over. Uh, because then nobody could guard him. You know, you might get help when he drove to the basket. But when he'd spot up, I mean, it was ridiculous. There was, there was no chance then that, that anybody was going to stop him. So how about a Dean Smith story? Coach Smith, to me, um, is still one of the most remarkable people because of his selflessness as a human. Um, and it's been showcased a lot since he passed away, what, 17 months ago, um, because of the way players, former players and friends and coaches have reacted to it. And you've now heard more stories since his passing than you probably would have heard later in his life. But the best story I can tell you about Coach Smith was I was a I was a senior in high school, and I was tagging along with my dad, and Carolina was playing a road game, but they would have pregame meal at a restaurant in Chapel Hill. So my dad, I would go to the games with my dad at Duke or NC State, and this happened to be a game at NC State. And um, so I rode with my dad to tape the pregame interview with Coach Smith at this restaurant where the team had had pregame meal. Well, it just so happened that I had played a basketball game in high school the night before, and we had played Southern Durham. I grew up outside of Raleigh, went to high school, a little town called Apex, and we had played Southern Durham. And so the box score was in the newspaper. And Coach Smith came out of the of the team meal 
to tape the interview with my dad, and he saw me and he said, hey, congratulations on the win last night. And we had won the game by six. It was a nice win for our team. And he said, uh, I saw you had four points. Tell me about what else happened. How would you play defensively? Did you gain rebounds? How would your man do? You know, that type thing. And here's a guy getting ready to coach an ACC game in four hours, Logan. I mean, and, and ACC games back then were pretty big, and we're talking about state, and that's a rival game. And yet Coach Smith had paid attention to the line score in the newspaper and saw that I had four points and then wanted to know how, how, how else did I play. He could have been worried about a lot of other things and should have been worried about a lot of other things, but he had the presence to ask me. And I tell you that story because that kind of story has been told so much about him over the years of his selflessness and concern for other people. His amazing, the horror of his passing was that, you know, he had a neurocognitive disorder that ultimately robbed him of his ability to remember people. And that's a shame because one of his unbelievable gifts was is that he could remember people by name and people he never even met by name. Um, and then when he would see the person he knew, even though he had never met, hypothetically, a, a gentleman's wife or something like that, but he knew the gentleman, he would call the gentleman by name and then ask about his wife, whom he'd never met, by name. And I always think of that, that particular characteristic about Coach Smith more than anything else because it showed just how much he was concerned about the other people. And here this iconic figure was who you know ultimately would set the wins record um, but he was always concerned about other people and always asked of other people first. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot you can learn from something like that for sure. How about a Coach K story from your <laughs> side of the, your side of the uh, aisle? Well, you know, Coach K has always been most unique um, in that he's very similar to Coach Smith, even though that a lot of people thought they were rivals, but I also think now that in Coach Smith's passing here, people have found out the great respect and ultimate friendship that they shared. After Coach Smith retired in 1997, Coach K, you know, uh, Mike has always been just a genuine person. Uh, He coaches a high-level basketball team, and he's now done just an amazing job with our national team uh, in the Olympics. But the thing that I respect most about him is, is that he has done it in a way that you respect. I mean, he really has. I mean, he's the most incredible characteristic I think he's shown people in this country is he's taken a bunch of NBA guys and made them feel very patriotic about what they're doing. I mean, the comments that come out after every Olympics are from these guys that people think are arrogant or self-driven or whatever the case may be, and they talk about the appreciation they have for service and you know and self-sacrifice as it relates to the Americans. And and I think that's something to be something to be applauded. Um, for me personally, he's always been very respectful. Uh, my dad is going through a health situation right now where he's been diagnosed with a neurocognitive disorder called aphasia. And Coach Smith, uh, Coach Krzyzewski rather, much like Coach Smith, uh, recently sent my dad a one-page handwritten note about my dad, to my dad. And that is something that uh, is not lost on our family. Um, he was always very respectful of me and what I was trying to do and uh, has always supported me in, in the times I've had his games, particularly here since I've moved to television. So uh, I'm very appreciative of that and uh, and always think a lot of him. And, 
you know, yeah, Carolina and Duke are rivals, but at the same time, he's he's done it the right way at Duke, and Carolina people can appreciate that. All right, we're far enough off track that we should probably get back on course <laughs> a little bit. I think that was good stuff. I had a lot of fun with it anyway, so if no one else does, that's just too bad. That's a podcast. Yep, exactly. So going back to getting the Atlanta Falcons job, some of it had to be you were already in Atlanta as a high-level announcer but that's not a place where there's a shortage of them what was the connection or the break that you got to get in there and then what was your welcome to the NFL moment um well to be honest with you I had done the preseason games on radio because the radio the regular radio announcer did the television play-by-play and it just so happened that Georgia Tech's games aired on the same station the Falcon games did so the radio station asked me if I would do the preseason play-by-play, and I was more than happy to do it um, because I wanted to be part. I mean, I wanted to see if I was any good at it. To be honest, I mean, I I was not. I'm not a huge pro football fan. In in you know full candor here, I mean, I've enjoyed the experience, and I like following the NFL. But I'm not somebody who lives and dies as a child the National Football League. I was a college football and college basketball guy, so the chance to do the NFL was fun. And I had a great time with the preseason game in the uh, – I did them in 99, 2000, and 2001. I did them for three years. Well, in 2004, in the summer of 2004, the regular radio play-by-play guy uh, took a job in Tampa, Florida, doing television. And um, when he did, he had to give up doing the Falcons. And Rich McKay, who's the president and CEO of the organization – uh, Mr. Blank, Arthur Blank, who's the owner of the team, uh, got together, and my name came up because I was doing Georgia Tech at the time. Rich had just arrived in Atlanta the previous December, Logan, after being in Tampa. And I kind of owe an assist to Gene Deckerhoff here because Gene is not only the voice of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but he's a legendary voice of Florida State. So Gene does Saturday Sundays, too. And Mr. Blank mentioned my name. Rich had heard of me a little bit, and they put their heads together and thought it would be a good idea. And believe it or not, in 72 hours, I became the voice of the Falcons. Um, Now, that being said, remember earlier we talked about the business of this, right? I was Georgia Tech's employee at the time working for the school. Dave Brain was the athletic director, Chan Gailey the football coach, and Paul Hewitt was the basketball coach. And in a span of about... mm, four hours, I talked to each of them and said, here's what I've been offered. Would you guys be supportive of it? And they all agreed that I should do the NFL, and they had no problem as long as I did not miss a Georgia Tech football game straight up. Paul Hewitt, the basketball coach, was all for it, and his games were the ones that were ultimately sacrificed because I was going to miss a you know, basketball game. It was bound to happen I'd miss a basketball game at some point. And so Paul Hewitt was all for it, loved it, thought it was a great arrangement, and was incredibly supportive. So literally in the span of 72 hours, I went from being just the voice of Georgia Tech to being the voice of Georgia Tech and the Atlanta Falcons. And fortunately for me, David Archer, former quarterback for the Falcons who played eight years in the NFL, six more in Canada, um, was named as the analyst. And Dave and I have now, this will be our 13th season together, and we have had a wonderful, wonderful ride, highs and lows, of course. But, uh, you know, it's, it's been a real blessing to, to be part of the organization. My welcome to the NFL moment, 
probably occurred <laughs> the first year I did the games. Uh, Atlanta went 12 and four and lost to Philadelphia in the NFC title game. And when we played in the NFC title game in Philadelphia on a Sunday, um, I had a I had a basketball game in Atlanta on Saturday, and a snowstorm hit Philadelphia. So the short version of the story is I barely got there. Um, but we signed on the air that day to do the game, and when they ran out on the field to start the game, I then realized I am 60 minutes from the Super Bowl as a first-year NFL announcer. <laughs> And Atlanta did not win that game, and they've been back to the NFC title game once since then. But I realized that day, holy cow, the biggest game in the Western Hemisphere I am 60 minutes from. And I've never forgotten that feeling. And um, it's uh, it's been awesome. I mean, I really enjoy doing the games. I enjoy following the league now. And I wasn't much of a fan, as I said earlier, but um, I really enjoy being a part of the NFL, and the, and the organization has been incredibly supportive to us. We've moved around for three different radio stations, and technically we work for the radio stations, Logan, not the, not the team. But those radio stations understand the relationship Dave and I have with the team, and, and they continue to be supportive as well. So that's an interesting thing you said, being 60 minutes away from the Super Bowl and that right. is something that just about everybody who gets into broadcasting someday wants to do. And I've covered a small school, and I, I'm assuming the feeling isn't that different as far as a regular game where you want them to win, but it doesn't maybe necessarily eat at you like if you had played the game yourself after a loss. Was that a little bit different after you lost that game? What was the level of disappointment like? Well, it was my first year. And I didn't know you were supposed to go to the Super Bowl. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, uh, I mean, I remember losing the game and disappointed that they lost the game. The one that stings to this day, and probably the most disappointed I've been in a loss period, um, was they played the NFC title game against the 49ers in uh, January of 13 and lost that game. Um, and they lost the game at the end. I mean, they had a lead, lost the lead. Matt Ryan passed across the middle. Navarro Bowman hit Roddy White. Ball was incomplete on fourth down. It could have been pass interference, wasn't called. And to that day, that one bothers me. That one is one of the more disappointing losses because I thought that team could go to the Super Bowl. That team could go to the Super Bowl. Didn't know if they'd win, but I thought that team could go to the Super Bowl. And I'm not going to lie to you, I'm in it because now uh, when you get to this long doing the games, I mean, you want to do one of those now. I mean, you want to, no matter where it is, they could play it on Mars or Saturn, you want to do a Super Bowl. And uh, um, Dave and I both talked about it. Neither one of us will go to the game um, until we broadcast it. Um, he made that statement a couple of years ago, and I feel the same way. I have no interest in going to the Super Bowl unless unless the team I'm doing is playing in it. And it's coming to Atlanta in a couple of years, and I'm going to stand by that. Even in Atlanta, I won't go to the game unless the team plays in it. So uh, hopefully they'll play in it before that, but uh, I'm, I'm hoping that I get that opportunity. That is a that is a unique, unique – I mean, I'm unique anyway. I'm one of 32 doing the games, Logan. But it will be unique to um, – do that game. I mean, there have only been 50 of them. 
So, you know, and they only play them once a year. So that would be – I've done a national championship game in basketball. I've done an Orange Bowl or a BCS game. And I'd like to do a Super Bowl if I can. This is the end of part number one of the Say the Damn Score podcast, episode number 20 with Wes Durham. For part two, just look down below on your iTunes list or on saythedamnscore.com or wherever the heck you just happen to be listening to it. It should be right there for your consumption. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy part two.